I call it the wind in our sails. It is what drives us forward. And that's part of the message, kind of new surprising message in this book. Stress and anxiety are not things that you want to get rid of. It's something that you want to harness. It's something that you want to activate for exactly the things that you want to do in the best way that we can. Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome to The Globe Podcast. Dr. Wendy Suzuki is a professor of neuroscience and psychology in the Center for Neuroscience at New York University, and she is the author of Good Anxiety, Harnessing the Power of the Most Misunderstood Emotion, and also the author of Healthy Brain, Happy Life, a personal program to activate your brain and do everything better. She is one of those rare scientists who has redirected their career, switching from studying memory to studying the effects of exercise on the brain to studying anxiety. She has personal reasons for making the change. When she was dealing with weight issues and her own anxiety, she discovered that exercise was the key to body and brain health. The result is her newest book, Good Anxiety. If you ask most people, they'll say, I wanna get rid of all the stress in my life or I don't want any anxiety in my life. But as Dr. Suzuki explains, we all need anxiety. Anxiety is the fire we need to drive us forward. We talk about how old coping mechanisms stop working and how you need new ones, the difference between good anxiety and bad anxiety, and her concept of microflow, which means taking a moment to savor and appreciate what you do well, and also the power of joy conditioning versus fear conditioning. She also notes that simply being aware of your breathing is one of the most powerful ways to allay anxiety. Dr. Suzuki clarifies how we can make anxiety work for us instead of controlling us. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Wendy Suzuki. Hi, Dr. Suzuki. So wonderful to be here with you today. Thank you so much for having me, Derek. So I'm especially excited to have this conversation with you. This topic is personal for me. And it wasn't until probably four or five years ago that I started to get honest with myself about my anxiety and my historical strategies for coping with it. And in your most recent book, uh, which is amazing, I recommend everyone go out and buy it. It's titled Good Anxiety, Harnessing the Power of the Most Misunderstood Emotion. You mentioned that around 90% of the population experiences what you call everyday anxiety, and that this yes. type of anxiety can be a life robber, which you put in quotes. And I fully agree with that based on my experience. So I suspect this topic is personal for most of us. And if anyone listening has a troubled relationship with anxiety, um, specifically the good type of anxiety, and I hope we'll get into the difference between good and bad anxiety. Please read uh, Dr. Suzuki's book. Uh, as a side note, also read her first book, Healthy Brain, Happy Life. It's packed full of so many helpful tips. Um, maybe we'll get to that, maybe we won't, but you know, back to your new book, You know, it really has helped me further shift my mindset with respect to anxiety. And after spending more and more time reflecting on it, I'm actually more grateful for my good anxiety. And I, I think we'll get That's into great. I think we'll get into yes. that. 
but before we start, in your writing and your interviews that I've listened to and your inspiring TED Talk, which, very cool, has close to 13 million views, flowing through you is this contagious positivity. And <laughs> towards the end of your most recent book, you speak to how you've adopted a creative approach to life. And I was thinking as I was reading that, to what extent your positivity and creativity are linked. And so before we get into the, mm. the meat of your book, can you share with us a bit of your background and how you've come to adopt this creative approach to life that you refer to? Yeah. So, I mean, I came uh, for many, many years, I was a very traditional academic. I did all the things, you know, you're supposed to do. I, I majored in physiology anatomy, and then I got into graduate school. Uh, and then I did a postdoc, uh, which you're supposed to do. And then I got my faculty position, and then I got tenure. And then I was like, wait, is that all? Is it was this? Is this? Is this nirvana? Did I reach it? Because <laughs> I'm not feeling all that great yeah, right you, now. You checked off all and, the boxes. Yeah, I checked of off all the boxes. Yeah. And um, uh, also at that moment in time when I got tenure, I was, I was 25 pounds overweight. It was stress weight, stress and anxiety weight. Um, and that is when I had a wake-up call that, that you know, I, I need to, to, to change the physical aspects of, of my life. And I went to the gym. And a year and a half later, I came out 25 pounds lighter and feeling better and eating better and so much energy. And that was the start of my first book, the, the, the journey to the first book, Healthy Brain, Happy Life. It was also my journey to, um, to explore different aspects of creativity because it so fascinated me that uh, not only did I lose weight and I felt so good, but I noticed specifically that my writing was better. As a scientist, I have to write all the time. And um, I, ha I have this memory of this one day where uh, this was after I lost 25 pounds. I was like, wow, that, that writing session today was good. That, was, that went well. I'd never had that thought before. And uh, it's like, wow, what's going on here? Maybe I'm just having a good day. But, but I, I felt like unconsciously I had been getting better. And it was... Um, uh, uh, I, I, in researching it, it, it seemed like exercise was helping my brain. It was helping my memory. It was helping my focus. And, um, it forced me into an interesting quandary, uh, um, like, of who am I as a scientist? Uh, I, I'd spent the previous 20 years building up my study of memory, which I love fascinating how memory is formed and how it forms our personal, personal histories. But gosh, I was so interested in the effects of exercise. And uh, I kind of did it on the side and, and uh, taught classes on it and, and uh, got inspired to become a um, physical exercise instructor. And I brought exercise into the classroom. And then I turned around and was like, wow, look at all these things that I just did when I lost weight and I, I got you know, passionate about this. And, and that was really the, the start of, of this. It was, it was a kind of exercise and that that regular activity, that regular challenge, I think, that led to liking the challenge. It led to resilience. Like I could get through just one more set of burpees. Um, that I think is a major source of um, the 
creativity bug that that I got that really started when I went to the gym and I started getting interested in this whole different area. And just to be clear, there are not that many scientists that after they're a full professor say, hey, let me try something else. Let's just study something else. It was it was a huge it was one of the hardest decisions I ever made as a scientist to to switch. But but I I kind of had no other choice. I, I lost that edge for I need to understand memory. And I, I had the edge for, I need to understand what exercise is really doing to our brain, including to our emotions, including anxiety, which is how I ended up now at anxiety. But uh, it really started with that, that experience. So early on in your book, you say that you discovered exercise, nutrition, and meditation, which you refer to as mind hyphen body interventions. And mm -hmm. among other benefits, those particular practices actually change the structure of the brain, the, yeah. the sort of neurochemical composition of what's happening in the brain and ultimately our relationship with anxiety. And then on the next page, you, you make a point to refer to the whole as brain body. And mm -hmm. you know, one thing that I love seeing happening in fields such as psychiatry or neuroscience or psychology is that it seems to be more accepted to consider the mind as not only residing in the brain. Where do you land on that as a neuroscientist in terms of like, what is the mind? Where does it reside? And how do you, how do you think of mind? Yeah, I mean, I think of mind as kind of the totality of really what makes us unique as people. Uh, a large part of that is obviously in the brain, but as I refer to in both my books, I consider you know the body and the brain so interconnected. And it's important to emphasize that because for so long it's you know it was cut off from one another. So there are so many things in your body, just you know purely physical, that can affect your brain. And, and um, this is kind of the, the, the revelation that we're starting to understand. And similarly, um, your mindset and your belief system that originate in the brain can change your physiology, can change how you digest things, how you, uh, um, uh, how you take kind of physical pain to your body. So, um, is, so, so that means that, you know, if, if all of this is connected, that, that the mind is, you know, uh, is truly influenced and is part of, you know, resides in, in the whole body, not just the brain. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on to stress and anxiety. Also early on mm -hmm. in the book, you acknowledge that we do need a certain amount of stress in our lives and you, you use the word homeostasis. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I read recently Professor uh, Antonio Damasio's work on uh, the homeostatic imperative and you know how he refers to it as not about creating balance necessarily, but about creating the conditions for life to flourish. And, and really central to that argument is that um, the homeostatic imperative is about creating surplus. So I wonder how you think about stress and anxiety and the, um, the evolutionary benefit of, of us uh, experiencing stress and anxiety as it pertains to flourishing and you know creating the surplus that's needed in order for us to kind of move on and move forward yeah as as, yeah. as living embodied organisms 
I, I think that's a beautiful way to think about it. And I, I, I agree with that approach um, because the way that I think of stress and the stress response is that fire of activation. It is that fire that drives me to switch my research from memory to um, to exercise and now to anxiety. It is that fire that makes me, you know, get up every morning and do my workout, my cardio uh, weights workout. Um, without that stress, you know, people always say, oh, yeah, I want to get rid of all the stress. Oh, too, too much stress. I agree. Too much stress is not good. But no stress would leave you in a puddle of just Netflix watching. I have nothing yet next Netflix, but you know, TV watching stupor. Um, we all need that fire, and that fire comes from both the anxiety that we feel that is warning us. Ooh, this is something important. This is something that we need to pay attention to, and that physiological stress response that underlies, that always comes with anxiety. So it, it uh, so he, uh, Antonio Damasio calls it flourishing. I call it the wind in our sails. It is, it is what drives us forward. And that's part of the um, message, kind of new surprising message in this book. Stress and anxiety are not things that you want to get rid of. It's something that you want to harness. It's something that you want to activate for exactly the things that you want to do in the best way that we can. And that's what I try and explain in the book. Right. How much innovation, creativity, literature, poetry, et cetera, wouldn't exist were it not for a certain amount of good and bad anxiety. So speaking, yes. <laughs> so speaking yeah. of which, what is the difference between good and bad anxiety? And, and why is anxiety the most misunderstood of the emotions? Yeah, um, we call it the most misunderstood emotion because um, ask 10 people on the street, you know, uh, what do you think of your anxiety? Like, oh, I hate it. You know, I want to get rid of it. Uh, no good. I just want to leave it at the, at, at the front door and never see it again. Um, and that is the misunderstanding that uh, evolutionarily speaking, that anxiety uh, um, including all the fear, anger, worry that comes with it, and the underlying physiological stress response is essential to our survival and to our being because it evolved to protect us. It is a protective mechanism. So you don't want to throw your protective mechanism out the door. And you might, so everybody's thinking, I know, well, I'm not feeling protected by my anxiety. It's not doing the right job. And I understand why the volume is just turned up too high. It's not your fault. It's kind of the fault of, of the culture right now. We have so many um, things that stimulate our, our anxiety, uh, that provoke our anxiety, from the simple weather report these days to the COVID report to, to the 24-7 news cycles. And, and it's just being activated too much. It's lost its ability to help protect us. So step one in my book, Good Anxiety, is to learn to dial down your, your particular anxiety response. And I give so many different tools, 40 different tools so that everybody can find something, not one thing won't will work for everybody. But I do start with the one thing that I think every single person can use. So that is the activation of the de-stressing part of our nervous system. So first thing, did you know there's a de-stressing part of our nervous system? 
It's called the parasympathetic nervous system, and it works to slow the heart rate down, to slow respiration down, and it shunts blood to our digestive and reproductive systems, and it helps us rest and digest. It's also called the rest and digest nervous system. And so how do I activate that? The only conscious control I have is over my breath. And so deep breathing, the oldest form of meditation that there is, is the best immediate way to activate that de-stressing nervous system and to calm yourself down. It works for adults, it works for children, it works in the middle of a anxiety-provoking conversation while you're waiting in line to get to an anxiety-provoking show. Works all the time and, and very powerful. There are many different types of breathing practices. Is there one in particular that you tend to use? Yes, there, there's one that I recommend that I use because it's so easy. It's called boxed breathing. And um, it is a four count on an inhale. So you inhale on four counts. You hold at the top for four counts. You exhale everything out on four counts and you hold at the bottom for four counts. And I can tell you that I've led many people in talks on this and I, I could hear in my voice, I'm not even doing it, I'm leading it. And I could hear my voice slowing down and I, oh gosh, I sound so relaxed. So just, just, you know, leading people, it, it relaxes you. So um, yeah, just simple, it's simple, easy to remember, box, four counts, up and down. Um, and uh, that's my favorite. Nice. Yeah, you offer so many tips in both books and they're all very accessible and not yeah. time consuming. And it's, yeah. it's, a, it's, it's amazing when you think of them in terms of not only the volume, but the compounding effect of, of stacking, you know, the ones that work yeah. for you, like not, not all of them are going to work for everyone. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just kind of collecting them on my way from, you know, 25 pound overweight, uh, almost tenured professor uh, to now. And, and I, I think part of the reason why the book is, is useful is because these are the ones I use. You know, I collect them, I use them, I talk to people about them. And so, and, and it's not, it's not gonna take you three hours to do it. This is like things, we call them brain hacks in Healthy Brain, Happy Life. It's, you know, less than four minutes everybody can do them and uh, it, it makes it fun and, and doable. Yes, and if you don't have time to read the whole book, Healthy Brain, Happy Life, you can just go to the end of the chapters and yeah. they're all you know, neatly and, and uh, accessibly <laughs> listed there. So uh, I highly recommend that. So you mentioned something in uh, your book uh, and you refer to it as the activist mindset and you refer to it as a superpower and one thing that really caught my eye is you said that those of us who suffer from anxiety have a clear advantage at developing this superpower can you yeah. expand upon what you mean by that yeah yeah i think this is one of the most unique parts of good anxiety and um so we start out with um anxiety is not something that you want to get rid of it's actually protective um, and if you are able to dial down that anxiety and get it back into that optimized protective zone, then you can benefit from really specific gifts or superpowers. And one of them is the activist mindset. And the activist mindset is just a mindset that allows you to approach anxiety-provoking situations with 
a better, more open, perhaps more creative way to see it uh, and get rid of the approach that says, I'm, I'm just in for it again. I have no way out. You know, you, you're, you're that uh, uh, um, uh, person that just gave up and, okay, just give me all the stress that you have because I have no choice. So the first element of the activist mindset is the offering, hey, anxiety uh, is not all bad. It's actually protective. What if we switch our mindset from I hate anxiety to, oh, what? let me see, maybe, maybe it can be useful. For me, that's one example of the activist mindset. And why do I say this is a gift? It's a gift because those of us, that is all of us that are suffering from anxiety, every single situation that is anxiety provoking is an opportunity to practice this activist mindset and shift your anxiety about how you're going to approach it, how you think of the situation. Um, it is uh, uh, cognitive reframing is another way uh, to say it. And so we have lots of opportunities to practice it. And guess what? You're going to fail sometimes. It's not going to work. But you will have those things. It's like, oh, my gosh, I, I, that was so much more helpful when I thought about it this way, that maybe I will you know, feel more resilient at the end of this situation if I get through it. And that, that really helped me get through it. So it's building up those, those, uh, uh, those positive activist mindset uh, examples that will make that a superpower for those of us uh, that that um, have anxiety. Yeah, that makes me think of in the moment when I'm experiencing good anxiety, cognitive reframing doesn't mean that I like the feeling. It's still, I still right. perceive it viscerally as a somewhat unpleasant feeling and I still wish I yeah. didn't have it or d didn't experience mm -hmm. it. But I, I was experimenting with the, the, the vision of like sprinkling some sort of activist mindset fairy dust on, on top of this, <laughs> this feeling. <laughs> and, you know, I've noted like one of, one of the, you share many stories of particular individuals and, and how they're navigating mm -hmm. their anxiety. And one yeah. that I resonated very strongly with is the what if list. And uh, like I, it's yes. central to me because I, I've noticed that I have an inverse relationship between you know, preparation and anxiety. Like the more I prepare, the more competent I feel, the more uh -huh. my inner voices get a say in my final output, the mm -hmm. less anxiety I feel. And so what, what is that? What is the what if list? And how do you yeah. see people navigating that to, uh, yeah. to sort of to manage their anxiety? This is another, this is one of the gifts that comes with anxiety, but I also often offer it as, uh, another immediate kind of way to decrease your anxiety. It's like a two for one, because for me, my anxiety often manifests right before I'm going to go to sleep. And like I could feel the sleep coming on. I know it's coming and I'm looking forward to it. And then suddenly, did I send that email? Oh my God, D did I answer that student? And, and what if I didn't, they're going to think I, I'm not a good teacher and, or I'm, I'm lazy and I'm not organized. And so all of these what ifs come up. And I, I think this is very common for people. And so um, this tip, uh, I want to give credit where credit is due, came from uh, a lawyer that I was talking to during the, during the um, writing of this book. And I told her I was writing a book on uh, anxiety. And she said, oh, well, I'm the, I'm the powerful, well-paid lawyer that I am because of my anxiety. And she went on to tell me the story that um, she had a very, very active and continues to have a very active what if anxiety list. 
but she turned every one of those worries about her case that she's working on and what the other lawyer was going to come at her with, what the judge was going to say. She turned that into a to-do list. And that made her case stronger. It made her win more cases. It made her a better, even more well-played lawyer. And I, that, that's beautiful. So, so now, at, when, when those what-if lists come, come up at, uh, right before I'm going to go to sleep, I just tell myself, okay, yeah, that's great. I'm going to revisit this tomorrow morning, and I'm just going to check off all of them. And I'm going to make it into a gift or a power of productivity. And the more what-if lists you have, the more productive you have the potential to be. So this is one I think that an, another one that's kind of immediately uh, applicable and is a direct use of your anxiety response into a productivity response. Yeah, and I think that's so helpful because you know I've noticed in my past certain coping mechanisms. You know, I'm now 47. Uh, and historically, there were certain coping strategies that worked for me that just don't work for me <laughs> anymore. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, Me too. That, that, you know, the what if list would be there and I would employ those strategies, often unhealthy or unhelpful, both to myself and to others. And so, yeah, that's why that one in particular resonated so strongly with me. And, and um, when you speak to that point, one thing you say is when anxious people are less occupied, they become more vulnerable to their worry and therefore mm. more distracted, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think uh, that comes from studies showing that that is exactly the case. And so uh, activity, productive activity is, is very useful uh, in those situations. But the other thing that you said that I, that I loved is um, the recognition that your coping mechanisms that worked five or 10 years ago, sometimes they don't continue working for you for whatever reason. And that happens to all of us. And, and that's something really to keep in mind. Always evaluate that. And it's fine. Go, go find other ones. That's part of the reason why I made all of the um, uh, uh, kind of tool list in Good Anxiety so that people would have this list of, of other uh, positive coping mechanisms uh, to give a try if, if their coping me mechanisms aren't, uh, aren't as um, powerful um, um, at the moment. You also unpack the concept of microflow, and you know, this is building on, I think, the work uh, by uh, Mahali Chiksent Mahali. Uh, and I, part of why this was powerful for me to read this is because it maps directly to some of how I have navigated uh, moments in my life, uh, especially as an entrepreneur. Mm. It comes with intense ups and downs, and one of my coping strategies has been just kind of reflexively uh, you know, to be mindful of the small moments of mm. either wonder or awe, uh, mini successes, you know, and so long that, and to truly take and to recognize when they're happening and to take that moment to savor yeah. those particular moments, to delight in them, because I know likely coming in the wake of that moment is something unpleasant or less pleasant, or, or that can interrupt or, or um, uh, change the nature of whatever flow I'm experiencing. Yeah. So what is the microflow and, and, and how does that feature for you? Yeah, so um, that is one of my favorite um, uh, 
gifts of, of anxiety. And that is this new concept. So flow, um, Csikszentmihalyi describes this state of flow that comes with um, high levels of performance and you know performing at your very very best and you know I would read these definitions it's like oh crap you know I'm never going to get flow that that's <laughs> is it is it unavailable to me you know is it only available to Yo-Yo Ma and people like that right, right. and so um, yet at the same time you know there were. There were, uh, um, I, I was noticing just like you, especially in times of stress, you realize, oh God, this was, that, that was a great conversation or just, I so appreciated uh, this interaction or maybe it was an interview that, that went really smoothly and really well. But it really came to me uh, one day when I was in a yoga class and I'd done the yoga class and then I was, I was doing the best pose, like, that I ever do in yoga class, which is um, uh, um, Shavasana, the corpse pose, just laying down on the floor. And I'm like, I'm flowing. I, this, is, this is flow right here. Mm -hmm. this, I'm redefining this as flow. I'm doing this so well. Like I, nobody can do this better than me. <laughs> and that's when I realized that, that it, it could be a thing. Micro flow. We we uh, tested out different names: snackable flow, mini flow. We we came out with micro flow. And part of the reason why micro flow and those moments of savoring and really appreciating what you do well, whether it's making a green shake in the morning or doing shavasana or picking picking your outfit for the day, maybe that is a little moment of flow for you. Um, for those of us that are uh, that have anxiety, like uh, a founder, uh, um, lots of things coming out at us at the same time, it almost makes, not almost, it does make those moments of flow even sweeter because we have that negative contrast to the moments of anxiety that are fearful. They, th those, those negative emotions will never go away. Again, they're there for a reason, but, but, it's like you can savor, you can learn to savor the moments of microflow even more because you know what those other moments of discomfort in, in, in your emotional state are. So it is truly a gift of people with everyday anxiety that they could uh, benefit and, and, and enjoy even more the moments of microflow. Yeah, I love that. I navigating chronic stress for so long mm. has just required it. And, yeah. and I'm, I'm grateful that there, there have been these spontaneous experiences of, of ways to manage it, you know, in a healthy way. Are there any other tools you can offer that leverage this concept of microflow or, or take advantage of the benefits that come through microflow? Yeah, in fact, uh, uh, this brings to mind one of my favorite tools that I that I provide at the back of the book, um, and this tool is called joy conditioning. So joy conditioning is based on my 25 years of studying how memory works, and um, it is a direct uh, counterbalancing to fear conditioning, 
that, that all happens to us naturally. It's dependent on a brain structure called the amygdala. And it is another protective mechanism. And that is the, the um, automatic thing that happens. If something really bad, scary happens, you tend to be scared of the things associated with that bad experience. So you get mugged in a particular street corner. You, you have an automatic feeling of fear when you get to that street corner because it was associated with a really bad situation. That's fear conditioning. It happens automatically, hard to get rid of. And then, you know, so so that's a little bit depressing. It's like, I'm just building up all my fear conditioning. What can I do? You know, can't I get uh, counterbalance that with something? So here's the idea, joy conditioning. Joy conditioning is not automatic, but it is consciously accessible. And the idea is that you mine all the most joyous, beautiful, wonderful memories from your own life. This comes from your own life. And how often do we kind of take a, a walk down memory lane and, and really try and remember the, the funniest joke that somebody told us or the best vacation we took? And uh, I have one other little trick. Find a memory that has a particular odor associated with it. Um, it's not a requirement, but it helps because olfactory scents really help bring back the full experience of the memory better. Why? Because the olfactory sensory modality is directly and um, um, uh, in one stop linked to the hippocampus, important for memory. And so olfactory stimulated memories have always been in our evolution, very, very powerful. So my joy conditioning memory that I, I like to share is one um, also going back to the yoga class, I don't go to yoga all the time, but I have a lot of uh, yoga in the book. So it was a yoga class where uh, I, I still remember I was doing really well. You know, I was, I, I was really limber that day and I was doing all the up dogs and the down dogs and I flipped my dog and then I was in Shavasana and um, uh, feeling really good, like really proud, like that, I, you know, I crushed that workout. But then the teacher came around and she, waved under my nose, my eyes were closed. She waved under my nose um, like uh, um, lavender lotion. So I got this big whiff of wonderful lavender. And then she gave me this surprise five second neck massage, which was the most luscious neck, unexpected neck, neck massage that I got. And I could still kind of feel that, that feeling of, ooh, this is like an extra special treat. And so it's true that if I walked over there and got my purse, I do carry around a little vial of uh, lavender essence. And so when I need to go back to that, you know, just special moment, so relaxing moment, I smell the lavender. And, um, but that is just the, the formula. Everybody can fill that in as they want. And the more you bring up those, those memories, the stronger they become. So that is the, um, that is the tool of joy conditioning. I know that experience. Well, it's so lovely. The first yoga class I ever took, the teacher did that for me, and I'll never forget it. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one. But any any memory, every any juicy memory that you have uh, could be part of your joy conditioning toolkit. I'm so glad you mentioned your tool of joy conditioning as something that is not automatic and is by definition conscious and takes effort as a counterbalance to the unconscious automatic fear conditioning. And I think about how I observe myself letting good anxiety crowd out my joy or anxiety causing me to not have access to my joy. I think 
of how I'll be sitting there watching something beautiful, precious, or fleeting unfold in the moment. And I'll be simultaneously observing myself as it's happening, as an inner dialogue, feeling and acknowledging, labeling the unpleasant feelings of anxiety while another part of me in the same moment is saying, come on, wake up, my friend. Like This is a moment to savor, to be present. This is an opportunity to be in joy. Do you recommend trying joy conditioning in the moment of a fear response? Or is it something that you is, is better employed post arousal? Yeah, I have not tried it in the middle of an anxiety attack. It is more um, um, to bring just to bring more joy generally. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's kind of like the savoring and, and the the micro flow that that we were uh, that we were talking about. You know, there are moments in all of our days where there are moments of micro flow. Well, add to the joy and uh, in in a uh, in a moment uh, you might be having a cup of coffee. Uh, employ some joy conditioning and and that will you know all of this is is uh making that dopamine and serotonin flow in your brain and um that that you know keeps us at a really nice kind of affective state and do you include positive affirmations and gratitude practices under that umbrella of joy conditioning Sure. You know, I teach a form of exercise called Intensati uh, that was developed by uh, this wonderful fitness instructor, Patricia Moreno. Uh, and it combines physical movements from kickbox and dance and yoga and martial arts with positive spoken affirmations. I do it at the end of my TED talk. And um, I, I, I do it. Uh, I mainly practice that when I'm teaching others intensity because it's it's fun to do it and very powerful to do it in a group. My own kind of meditative practice is more about just uh, um, uh, uh, open monitoring meditation and and I do use joy conditioning quite regularly. So I, I don't I don't meditate with with positive spoken affirmations, but but I enjoy it every time I get to teach it. And the sense that I get if you combine all of your personal practices, you, you cover what I think of as mindful movement. Like you cover, mm. you're covering focused attention, open monitoring, you're covering a kind intention through your, your, your compassion practices, mm -hmm. uh, but also through your physical movement, you, you're adding in, like you said, affirmation practices. And, um, it sounds like also an attention to a compassion, a, to yourself as to what's appropriate yes. for you in the moment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we think of that as uh, falling under this broader category of, of mindful movement. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. yeah, that resonates very strongly with me. Yeah, no, it's, it, it is. And one of the things, so in my own exploration of my own anxiety, um, for this book, I realized what, how much of a anxiety hider I was. I, I like to mask my anxiety. I'm not anxious. I, I'm not that anxious. I'll, I'll just write about it. You know, it's not. <laughs> and then you know, all these stories poured out about my own anxiety. It's like, oh gosh, there's there's uh, there's more there than I thought. And um, it's uh, it's important to reflect on on that. And uh, um, oh, what I was going to say is that 
um, one of the things that I learned as I as I deal with my own anxiety is um, how how much kinder I am to myself now than I used to be. So that's kind of a part of aging. I was I was strict and mean <laughs> to myself for many 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 years, and um, uh, and that that was and and I told myself you know that worry that stress that anxiety that's good for you. And that, you know, the more you have that, the more you're going to drive yourself, which partially true, but, but, you know, I, I completely, you know, reworked that to add in that self-compassion, to add in that, that, that acknowledgement of what that stress was doing to me and, and where I wanted it to be in my life. And, and, you know, that's, that's kind of the story of how I ended up um, with this book. I'm grateful that more and more people are talking more openly about their inner experiences and that it's more acceptable to do so. For someone like yourself to disclose what you just said and even more deeply in your book, that helps others see that they're not alone. Your mention of self-compassion is, a, I think, a great transition now to empathy and compassion. Can you speak to the importance of self-compassion as one navigates unpleasant emotions? I do think that that self-compassion is such, such an important component. And it also helps us with the task, with the difficult task of looking in on our own fear and anger and worry without immediately going to, what's the matter with you? Why, you know, if you're angry, it's probably your fault anyway. Um, and because that's such an important part of, of getting to the good part of anxiety, that is learning about what your, what these, all of the uncomfortable emotions tell us. Uh, and understanding that as humans, we have this huge range of emotions. If we stayed Teletubby happy, all of our lives, we would not be very interesting people. The, all of these emotions make us who we are. And, and um, that gets back to just being more open about um, all the emotions, not just the, yes, I have Instagram happiness now, but I'm angry. I, I'm worried. Um, lots of people are really worried right now. And being open to exploring that, sharing that, and, um, and, and sharing our anxiety without shame. Um, um, and it, it just lets out this, this fear of, of that, that very thing, of, of sharing uh, about this, this particular misunderstood emotion of anxiety. Right. And of course, there's also the dynamic of, uh, in terms of disclosure, what's too much disclosure and what's unhealthy, yes. you know, emotional mm -hmm. dumping and, and sort of a, uh, um, uh, a manipulative form of, of right. disclosure. And, um, you know, you mentioned compassion and I, I found it fascinating that you refer to it as the most simple superpower mm. of anxiety. And ultimately that part of what anxiety is designed to do for us is to engage compassion, you know, compassion for mm. yourself, for your personal triggers, and that, that ultimately that can lessen the anxiety in yourself and others. Yeah. yeah. I, I, that's one of my favorite gifts from anxiety. And it really was a revelation, uh, um, 
when I got to this chapter thinking about, okay, so I know there's something around, around this. How, how does it really manifest in me? How am I using it? And so, of course, I went back to my oldest standing um, anxiety, which is social anxiety. So as a young kid, I was an awkward, uh, um, shy kid, high school student, even early college student, who um, it was very scary to be able to interact in class and you know ask, ask that question, raise my hand in front of everybody, and potentially ask a really idiotic question. That was what was going through my mind. <laughs> Mine too. And, um, <laughs> everybody, everybody yeah. has that. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, but I had deep, again, that's my, my, my longest standing anxiety. And so um, I found, I, I realized that that particular anxiety and that knowledge of what that felt like was giving me a superpower of empathy in my own classroom. So I, I don't have fear of speaking anymore. I'm a teacher, but um, I found myself unconsciously making sure that I, I, I arrived early, I stayed late so that I could have those more informal conversations with those students that it was harder for them to uh, you know, raise their hand, but if they come up to me and just ask privately or just have a small conversation, that's much, much easier. And I realized, oh my God, that that is because of my anxiety. That is one of my you know, major features, my major superpowers as a teacher is I was doing that. Where does that come from? I, it came from my anxiety, that empathy. And I realized that everybody has this empathy because they feel the pain themselves in whatever form of anxiety that they have. So it is, it gives you an automatic way to turn that empathy that you've felt and lived outside and help somebody else because you have this, now you have the superpower to see it like, Oh, I know what they're going through. And it's really, it's beautiful. It's simple when you think about it. And there's nothing more that I think we need in this world right now is a world full of more empathetic people. And what a gift. I was one of those students and uh, I was grateful for any opportunity that either the professor or before that in high school would take you know, to have that private one-on-one -on -one time where yeah. you know, I was free from the possibility of, of my own sense of uh, judgment or anxiety, comparison, et cetera. Yeah. So that, that's wonderful that you do that. And you also mentioned in your book that we need to feel, in terms of empathy, we need to feel grounded ourselves in order to take the perspective yeah. of another. So it really takes all the work that you you do on yourself and the experiences yeah. that you've had, like you mentioned, in order to be available, you know, to, to kind of understand exactly how someone else might be feeling so that you can create mm -hmm. the conditions for them to flourish. Yeah. But, you know, if you do that, you do that work that I talk about in the book and you turn down the volume and you look at your emotions and you start to explore what that empathy gift can be for you, the secret extra cherry on top is that we know that acts of empathy towards others are a great way to uh, give yourself a dopamine hit. So it's like, come for the empathy, stay for the dopamine. Uh, it's, it's a double whammy <laughs> of goodness there. Yeah, I, I think I've mentioned this before in other interviews that my wife, Lisa, has taught me more about compassion and empathy than anyone you know, since oh. prior to her. So I'm, I'm grateful to be living in a, an environment where I'm uh, constantly uh, seeing compassion and empathy and action. And uh, yeah, I soak that up. 
Beautiful. I found it interesting that in terms of creativity, that highly, you mentioned that highly creative people demonstrate a poorer capacity for attention than their less creative counterparts. Can you unpack that? Yeah. So, I mean, this comes from a study and um, my interpretation of that result is that uh, creative people are making new connections all the time. Uh, this not does not require them to be focused on what you're saying. They're thinking about what you have said and linking it up with somebody, whatever the other person, you know, three days ago said and coming up with this, this new thing that has never existed in the universe before. Uh, it makes sense to me that uh, that is, that is uh, uh, part and parcel of, of a highly creative person. So, um, and, and it takes all kinds. So not all of us do that all the time, uh, but, but uh, and uh, I, I, I think it absolutely makes sense that that, that, is, uh, that was the overall finding. I wanna ask you about control. In my personal observation, you know, my relationship with anxiety, I think has a lot to do with also my relationship to control and the, the evolution mm. of my relationship to control. Mm -hmm. And so while prepping for our conversation, I was curious, when you think of the word control, what comes to mind for you? you know, both you know, as, as a human in, in a non-professional context and as a neuroscientist. As a human, the first idea that pops into mind is my old self. <laughs> I was very much into control mm -hmm. <laughs> early on. And perhaps in parallel with my transition to more exploratory, more creative life, I realized that control was the enemy of creativity. And what worked best in my creative pursuits, what works best in a podcast interview, in any interview, is like, I don't want control. I want to see what happens when Derek brain meets Wendy's brain and they, they, they talk about stuff and just see where that goes. And that's the best kind of creative, most interesting conversation. And so being an author and being on these interviews is so, I loved, I love that part because, um, uh, the more controls like, okay, I have to tell you these three points and, and that's all I'm, that's a terrible interview. Um, but if I, I know, you know, many points that I could say, but I'm really curious about how you have seen the book and how you, how you, how you see it. And I, I try and kind of play with, with that. And that is both more creative. It, it relinquishes any control and, um, but it, it, it's so much better. And, um, so, so yeah. Part of why I'm asking, I've just been really fascinated with this concept of control and how mm. similar to you, when I'm much more open to not being attached to the idea that I had for how something would evolve or manifest, yeah, that just how much more freedom and flow that I feel, yeah, you know, both in my yeah. personal and professional life. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I was just curious how you experienced that word or you contemplate that word, um, you, you already spoke to, I think, 
how you feel about that word on, on a personal kind of human level. But I'm wondering if yeah. there's if there's something else as a neuroscientist that uh, comes to mind when you think about that word. I mean, I think that uh, uh, something that I talk a lot about in the book related to control is emotional regulation, which is trying to control, you know, kind of out of control emotions, specifically anxiety. And um, yeah, I mean, that that is a good, better kind of control. It's, it's uh, uh, using approaches uh, like an activist mindset, like, you know, meditation approaches, like uh, deflection towards away from the stressful things towards um, other goals um, that can decrease uh, decrease anxiety. That's, that's a kind of control. You are, you are controlling your, um, uncomfortable emotions and, and you are trying to get them into this kind of, uh, zone that I keep talking about the protective zone of where your anxiety should be. And so that is highly, I mean, the other thing that comes up of course is the prefrontal cortex and cognitive, uh, executive functions that we know that it's so important for, and um, a lot of a lot of the mindset shifting that I talk about in the book is dependent on an activated and used prefrontal cortex. So um, I guess from a neuroscience perspective, the, the 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 brain area that that is obviously so important for for any kind of control is is the prefrontal cortex. You've mentioned your dream of creating not a Fitbit, but rather a stress bit. Can you share what um, brainbody.io is? So brainbody.io was uh, the idea of developing a platform that could quantify the effects of exercise on your brain. It was really, you know, from, from healthy brain, happy life. But it turns out that I, I am not only able to quantify the effects of exercise, but quantify the effects of a range of different interventions on your mood levels, including anxiety. And that is one of the most sensitive things that we found as we developed brainbody.io. And so for that reason, it's turned into goodanxiety.com. And uh, you won't see it on, I do have a website, goodanxiety.com, that's focused on the book. But we're kind of porting all of the health tech that we developed in BrainBody and are going to start using it for um, um, goodanxiety.com. Is it exactly a stress bit? No, it is. It's it's better than a stress bit. It it helps you. uh, um, It helps you uh, tailor your interventions, the tools that get you into a good emotional range. Um, When you are at high levels of anxiety, middle levels of anxiety or low levels of anxiety. So it's, it's like a, it's like a tool finding a quantitative tool finding mechanism for your emotional life. Mm. So maybe it is like a stress bit. I don't know. I, I, you know, the concept has changed. So morphed so many times, like, is it a stress bit yet? Still? (laughs) And that's, is that still a, b2b product no well that's what we're trying to figure out Mm -hmm. that's what we're trying to figure out and uh there are benefits uh to it i think i think 
ultimately we wanted even brain body to be B2C. And I would love that that good anxiety can be B2C in a, you know, corporate setting in in school settings. Um, so so uh, uh, we're we're working on it. Once I get this book launched, going back to it. <laughs> nice. And are you is that a separate company and are you running it? I'm running the company. Yeah. What is that like to context switch between teacher researcher to developing a digital product? It was so exciting. I loved, I loved it. I mean, I uh, scientists are mini entrepreneurs in the context of the department. We run our own labs. We run, you know, uh, uh, we have lab managers. We have students. We have postdocs, and so that part wasn't. Uh, uh, the managerial part wasn't so um, different, but the product development part was mm -hmm. the stretching of my mind from scientist to, um, you know, head of company where I pitched all the pitch decks. I created the pitch decks. I, I, uh, I had to start working with engineers to create the, the platform. Wow, that was that was a huge but fun if not stress and anxiety producing uh, activity, I learned an enormous amount. I learned how to do things that took a really long time. And so now I'm doing them much shorter. And um, mainly I learned how to, how to hone the idea better. And um, the, the brain body platform was valuable, but, but the thing I realized is that um, well, a subset, a good subset of the population do go to gyms and are interested in that. Um, 100% of the population is anxious, and so what? What is a better, you know, market for for what I what I've been developing? Uh, is it the gyms uh, that we're going for for brain body, or is it the general population um, that all have anxiety that I have science based approach to measure and to intervene with? So that's. That's the that's the market space that I am cultivating and and um, uh, and developing for GoodAnxiety.com. Nice. Well, I look forward to seeing that, and seeing how that evolves. Thank you. Before I ask you the last question about your self care non negotiables, is there anything else that you'd like to discuss that we haven't discussed, or anything that's upcoming from you, mm. or that you'd like to announce? Also, how would you summarize what you wish that people will learn through your newest book? What my wish for people reading Good Anxiety is that if they do take the time to turn the volume down and look in and explore those uncomfortable emotions and kind of milk them for their worth, what are they telling us? What is that wisdom that they're telling us? then all the gifts that they're talking about really manifest as a more fulfilling, more joyful, and less stressful life. That's what I got by applying all these approaches in good anxiety, and that's what I hope that everybody else can, can get from this book. Um, so that's my, that's my wish for the book. And uh, upcoming things is... Um, so you can learn all about the book and order it, and uh, uh, all my announcements around it will be and are on goodanxiety.com. Stay tuned 
for an interactive aspect of goodanxiety.com where you will be able to jump in and measure your own anxiety and uh, um, we'll be giving you lots of different interventions and so you can come back, measure it multiple times and uh, that is part of our, um, part of our data gathering pilot programs for goodanxiety.com. Nice, and is there a newsletter we can sign up for on your website? to find out when that's coming? Uh, not yet, but we will have a newsletter that will be announcing the new uh, activities that you can do on, on Good Anxiety and, and upcoming events and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. So are there any self-care non-negotiables uh, that you currently employ uh, either on a day-to-day -day basis or uh, on a weekly basis that you just uh, know that you need to do in order to kind of keep everything functioning well yes and um i i'm somewhat surprised at my own answer um because my answer is my my daily non-negotiable is my morning tea meditation that i do every morning i i learned it six years ago um, um when i was on vacation in bali and i learned it from a tea monk who led me and four other people through this silent meditation over the brewing and drinking of tea. It was out in nature, it was beautiful. We were in Bali, it was amazing. And um, somehow that stuck so hard, such that every day, every morning, since I got back from that trip, I have reproduced that same ritual and and the ritual of of the tea and the seeping and the brewing and the drinking uh it it, it kind of gets me into meditation deeply and more more um more long i could stay i could stay in this meditation for a very long time with ease and um i found that that is my one non-negotiable early morning traveling i travel with my own little bag of tea and um, and it really it really sets me up for the day. And you try to have some nature component to that as well. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes it's a fake potted plant in a hotel room, <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, uh, when I can, it's it's outside. It's uh, I I meditate right here where we're doing this podcast from, and I have all my plants around. Uh, so I always, my plants actually benefited enormously from my tea meditation because every morning I look at all of them and before I would never look at them and they would die. And so now it's like, oh, I actually, I can see you are, you are wilted. And so, but I see it every day. And so my plants are so much healthier now that I've been doing tea meditation. <laughs> That's funny. I thought you were going to say just simply by looking at them and giving them attention, they're doing better. But that, that's funny. That... Uh, but I do water them with tea. That was the other trick that the tea monk said is okay. that use the same tea that you uh, that you drink and water your plants. He was right. They love caffeine. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, Dr. Suzuki, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this time with you. And I'm telling you, buy her books. You will not regret it. They are fantastic. Thank you so much, Derek. This was a lot of fun. Thank you to our entire team behind the scenes at GLOW. I'm so grateful for your care and commitment to serving our members around the world. 
thank you to our teachers for so beautifully sharing your gifts and talents. I'm also grateful to our lovely community of GLOW members. You've supported us since 2008, and because of you, we get to continue to do the work we love. It's the combined support of our team, our teachers, and our community that grants me the privilege to continue to bring you the GLOW podcast. Thank you to Lee Schneider at Red Cub Agency for production support. And the beautiful music you're hearing now is by Carrie Rodriguez and her husband, Luke Jacobs. And remember, take care of yourself because our world needs you. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. You can find the GLOW podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or glo.com slash podcast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Derek Mills.